Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature vaccines, how they're made and how they work. In the studio, I have Mark West and Victoria Bond. Victoria, can you tell us about vaccines and how they work? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, controversy, especially these days, surrounding vaccines. And a lot of that might have to do with um, a basic misunderstanding of how vaccines work. So let's start with vaccines. What do they do exactly? Vaccines aren't these nano-engineered robots that attack viruses or bacteria for you. What vaccines are really designed to do is prime your own immune system so that when you are exposed to the actual bug, you can fight it off yourself. Right. The thing about immune systems is they need a little bit of practice. It's it's like playing soccer. You know, you can't really kick that goal at the beginning. So it's a little bit like uh, some fatherly advice when you come back with a scab knee after playing sport. They go, ah, no, you'll be right. Toughen him up. That's what vaccines do. And they're perhaps exactly. a little bit like, you know, those wanted signs. This is the guy you're looking for right here. Exactly. So when the immune system is first exposed to a new bug, say the swine flu, it has no idea what it's dealing with. It's, it's saying, what is this guy? How do I apprehend him? It doesn't have any of the tools. And it takes about six weeks for the immune system to really ramp up. And in those six weeks, you can actually have a lot of damage to your um, body, which is why diseases are, are so damaging at the beginning and why if you get through that initial window, you can often kick off the bug. So what vaccines do is they kind of cheat. They give you a shortcut and um, they expose you to parts of the bug without actually exposing you to the danger so that your immune system can recognize this thing as foreign and the next time you're exposed to it, it can ramp up that response and not in six weeks, but say in a week. So if we were to imagine this molecularly or imagine this in 3D, you've got a bug that has a certain chemical shape and exactly. part of it is doing bad stuff to you exactly. and another part of it is maybe binding to a receptor or something. Yeah. So we come up with some drug that binds but doesn't have the bad bit that hurts you. Exactly. So you get used to the the binding. Well, that's a perfect segue, actually. I was going to talk about different types of vaccines and how they differ. Wow, anyone would have thought we would have, we'd have rehearsed this. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> it's so convenient. Um, so there are lots of different types of vaccines, and they have a different amount of effectiveness. You might have realized that for some vaccines like polio, you can get vaccinated once or twice, and it lasts a lifetime. And then for other vaccines, you need boosters all the time. And that has to do with the innate nature of a vaccine. So you can take a vaccine by taking the bug that you mentioned with all the bad bits and all the foreign bits that the body usually recognizes, and um, you zap it. You, you kill that bug, and then you introduce it. And that usually, those are the vaccines that work really well. They're called killed vaccines. Um, and they give you lifetime immunity, but oftentimes you feel quite crook when you're given the shot. Um, so it, kind of as a solution to that, they've created another vaccine that's called attenuated. 
So they take the bad bits of the bug out and they just introduce the foreign bit and your immune system develops a response. These don't always work as well because there aren't as many foreign antigens, which is the, the bits that your immune system recognizes. So it, it usually takes a few more tries before your immune system has a, an adequate response to those. And they also have a whole bunch of new and exciting vaccines. So they have vaccines called conjugated vaccines, right. which are when you take a bit of a bug that the immune system would normally recognize as foreign, and then they merge it with a, a foreign bit. And that kind of boosts your immune system to recognize the whole thing as foreign. So the next time that it's exposed, it can actually attack bugs that it wouldn't attack Normally. ordinarily. So vaccines are really wonderful because it's like it's like giving you flashcards before a test. It, it's not something completely different. It's not like taking a, a drug to cure a disease. You're actually using your own tools, but more efficiently. And I think that's something that a lot of people might not understand about vaccines. Of course, nothing is safe, and if you've got a physiological response, you can have a bad physiological response. And that has to do with the fact that our immune systems are incredibly variable, and they need to be. If you think about how many different bugs are out there and how, many, how we manage to actually mount an immune response against them, that's an amazing amount of variation that you need just encoded in your genes to um, create different receptor types that can recognize all of these things. It's phenomenal, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's the most variable chromosome in the human body, chromosome 6, which is the one that has the gene encoding. And is this, do, uh, do different people have a different, are, they, are those chromosomes different? Is that why, or is that more of an exposure thing? Because you hear of, you know, when, when the Europeans came to Australia, the indigenous population got sick from smallpox and things like that. I it, think there's... um. There's a little bit of evolution that's mixed up in it, and it's it's more complicated than just one gene. So it's a very long gene, <laughs> and the way that it creates the receptors is it um, it's this technique called alternative splicing. So basically, you have one gene, and instead of reading it from the beginning to the end, you pick and choose, and that the pick and choose is completely random. And depending on which bits you pick, you have a different receptor shape. And I think what happened, say, in Europeans that were exposed to a bunch of different organisms, say, from the Middle East or from Africa or from Asia, the people who didn't have the, the right genes or the good bits to the genes died off. And right. so <laughs> their children had the, the variants that were more effective at, you know, um, kicking off the plague, for example. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of crosstalk, I think, between diseases. So they've actually found that people whose ancestors survived the plague have a better resistance to contracting HIV. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. And is that related to the, his, well, how do you pronounce this? Is it the immuno, I can't even think, how to say, the histocompatibility index? Ah, yeah, it's yes. It's the same. So it's the same. It's, it's the, that's the gene. It's called because MHC, this, ah, Major Histocompatibility Complex. Because they're saying that that's one of the things that we look for in a mate is someone who has a different one to us so that our children will be immune to more things. There's Yeah, there's a lot of theories I've going on about... That, yes. Yeah, that through the sense of smell, you, you're able to recognize someone who's a, a variant. Not necessarily com completely different, but different enough to confer a wider range. Because yep. obviously, if your children have a wider range of um, gene segments to choose from, they'll, they'll have a much better immune system. Yes. And uh, they're also finding... All of the autoimmune diseases are, of course, linked to this MH MHC gene. So 
Unfortunately, some immune systems are almost too good, quote unquote, and they start attacking or, or they don't have enough control. And there's um, oftentimes, I mean, some bugs like Streptococcus type B will cross-react with other bits in your body. So if you, if you get this bug and mount an immune response to it, you clear the bug, but then you start attacking yourself. Right. Is it the basis of some of the inflammatory diseases? They think it's the basis of most autoimmune diseases, but we just haven't found the antigen for a lot of them. The vaccinators want to ask the nation if everyone knows about vaccinations. There are diseases out there that threaten us. Meningitis, hepatitis, polio, HPV, influenza, measles, mumps, and DPT. All these diseases move with ease. They travel through the air as we cough and sneeze. We gotta wash our hands, brush our teeth, and remember that motto. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. So, Victoria, how do they make these vaccines? Well, Ian, I'm glad you asked. Um, vaccines, which we happen to take for granted, you know, we, we have them at birth, we have them at two months, at four months, at six months, we have them throughout our lifetime. They're actually impossibly complex and very, very intricate. I mean, just taking your normal flu vac, that takes a year to develop. It takes a year every year, which is just stunning. But it also has to do with the fact that the virus is so variable. Does that mean by the time you actually have the jab that it might not work? Yeah, well, um, especially with the flu vaccine, because the the bug has a tendency to mutate so fast, um, it's not actually that effective. I mean, it's very effective, but there are always different strains that are going around in the community, and you could be that unlucky person that gets the wrong strain. strain. Yes. So that's why people who have the flu vac this year for example, they're not immune to the swine flu because the swine flu is so completely different. It's a different. Yeah. yeah. It causes the same constellation of symptoms, but the, the foreign bits, the antigens, you, your immune system has never seen anything like it. So it's not that the vaccine, it's not that the flu, swine flu in itself is worse. It's just that it's easier to catch. Right. So all of the deaths that we're seeing are also deaths that happen with the normal flu. I mean, 24,000 people in the U.S. die every year from the normal flu. Well, I'm sure we could debate uh, the dangers of swine flu and bird flu for a while, but that's not what we're here to do. (laughs) So keep telling us about how they're made. So you have this really um, intricate process, and what it involves is um, eggs, actually. So they take fertilized eggs, and can you imagine these huge factories full of eggs, and they inject them... Chicken eggs. Chicken eggs, yeah. And they inject them with this antigen, and they let it proliferate in this really rich kind of environment. And then everything has to be absolutely aseptic. Can you imagine if bacteria were introduced 
in vaccines, that would just be horrendous. So it's, it's very carefully controlled. And I think it's, it's a process that few people really appreciate in terms of how complex and intricate and perfectly it's done. Um, and they take these eggs and they just create the vaccines that we use nowadays. But there's a new um, really exciting vaccine that was developed from tobacco plants. And what they did was they introduced an antigen that's usually found in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer type, and um, they let these tobacco plants grow. And they, they injected it in a part of the plant that, that isn't at all related to the pollen. So there's no risk of <laughs> um, spreading and you know harvesting different tobacco plants. And they ground up the plant and they actually created an oral vaccine that had very, very high rate of antigen that the body can recognize and mount an immune response. And um, that's just, I think it's wonderful because it's something that developing countries could use. They could actually grow their own vaccines. Because right now, I'm sure you're aware there's a bit of a monopoly over vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is part of the economics of vaccines that I'm going to get into later. Um, but they're still going through trials for the tobacco plant. So let's cross our fingers. I'd heard there were some food-based ones, like banana-based vaccines and things like that, that they were growing as well. Yeah, I think I think it's the idea to introduce vaccines in the food system. I think this new vaccine development would be wonderful for empowering developing countries because they have, they're powerless right now. Why do you think a malaria ma- vaccine doesn't exist yet? I mean, that's shameful. It's one of the diseases that is the most widespread in the world and that causes one of the greatest burdens of disease. If malaria were still in the United States like it was, you know, 200, 100 years ago, you can bet that there would be a vaccine developed. But there's no money in selling vaccine to poor countries. That's really horrible, isn't it? If you think that through, well, you don't have to think about it really, it's horrible. So what we really need is a way to do it cheaply and faster than in eggs. And tobacco might be one of the ways. Yeah, hopefully. Hope for the future.
Um, that's not the only controversy surrounding vaccines, of mm -hmm. course. Um, to <laughs> to harp on a, a much spoken topic, there's the controversy of autism with the MMR vaccine, and I I think I think a recent development of that original paper is that it was wrong. Right, <laughs> I believe it's been completely disproved. Yeah, but I think the damage is done. Well, it sticks. It's sort of thing that sticks in your mind, isn't it? Mm. Well, Unfortunately. It's, it's a terrible thing because if you've got a child who developed, if you've got an autistic child and you don't know why your child's suffering, you're looking for some cause. And if you can, if there's symptoms just after the first vaccination, then that's something easier to blame. Mm. And science is uncertain. They can't say absolutely yes, absolutely no on all sorts of things. So it's an easy thing to go for. That's a, that's a common problem, I feel, with science, is that they're never able to completely dis disprove something. So, And they're never able to completely prove something either. So it's like evolution. Evolution is just a theory. Evolution well, has never been proven to be true, but there's a stunning array of evidence. I think that's a whole other argument for when we have more <laughs> studio time. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's, that's a can of worms I shouldn't be opening. But... <laughs> Um, special show coming up. Special show. Diffusion controversy. Yeah, write into us if you don't believe in evolution. We'd like to hear from you. Write to Victoria especially. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> um, so, so the other thing with vaccines is their safety. Because, so, as you say, some children have a very strong immune reaction. Either they're allergic to the egg. Exactly. Or they, their immune system just goes overboard with the challenge from the vaccine. And some children even die. They either get injured it's one in or, a million. or they die. It's one of the risks, and it's one of the risks to the, that I was never told about and that doctors should tell their patients. Mm. I mean, doctors have a duty to tell patients for about common side effects, even if they're low, and about very uncommon side effects if they're drastic. And I'd say death is pretty drastic. Death is pretty drastic. Or, or brain damage. I mean, or I've heard those damage, cases yeah. as well. The problem is, though, that humans are very bad at calculating risk. So if you tell us there's a risk of you dying if you have the vaccine and there's a tiny bit of risk um, if you don't that you might catch it then it's hard to calculate those two risks yeah that's true and another problem um, with this rising rate of non-vaccinated people is um, the concept of herd immunity which I don't know that a lot of people have heard about but the thing with herd immunity is vaccines aren't actually that effective. They're only, you know, 80 to 90% effective. And the way that they really work is by keeping the disease out of the population pool. And if you've got a population pool of non-vaccinated people that are kind of acting as reservoirs for the disease, you get outbreaks periodically. So that's why pertussis, for example, still exists today. We have a very, a very effective vaccine against pertussis, and yet there are outbreaks periodically causing terrible lung damage to lots of children. It's, it's a terrible disease. I don't know if you've ever heard someone coughing from pertussis. It's this not is, a sound. This is commonly known as whooping cough. Yeah. It's, it's not a sound you're about to forget, I don't think. And um, that wouldn't happen if there was 100% vaccination. That's true. Because the disease wouldn't survive. It's really interesting mathematically, actually, to look at, look at how these things spread. It's, uh, the, the rate of infection is proportioned to the, to the population, and so is the rate of non-infection, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but when people either become immune or they die, I guess, they're mm. no longer infected. Mm. It's really interesting to look at that mathematically. And one of the outcomes of this, one of the steady states you get is it implies this herd immunity. So you get too many people that are infected. That means because the rate of infection is, is, is proportional to the amount of people that are infected, that increases. And then 
then that's how it can explode. Mm. So you get a tipping point there, which is where the herd immunity comes in. You know, that's what happened with polio. They had nearly eradicated polio, and then there was one outbreak, and it's back. And now it's back. Yeah, because, you know, they're, they're people who had previously been vaccinated hadn't kept their boosters up because they didn't expect to need them because polio was supposed to be eradicated, and it's just a nightmare. So hopefully that was a little bit of an explanation about vaccines and can help explain it to people who can who can understand and who can spread the knowledge Spread make the knowledge as if it were a disease. Exactly. <laughs> or <laughs> inoculate everyone with this knowledge about yes. vaccines, hopefully. We'll put it that way, yes. <laughs> Once, society exalted scientists as heroes. Their insights fueled tangible progress, from clean water to networked computing, self-evident benefits that we now take for granted. Yet, as science has moved on, it's become more complex and difficult to grasp. It's easier to portray scientists as the people who bring us Frankenstein food, pollute the environment, or conduct sinister experiments on defenseless little animals. In the war being fought against reason, even medicine is now under attack. Media cause célèbre, from side effects to superbugs, have bred widespread cynicism about medical progress. So much so, that in 1998, the publicizing of one survey of 12 children that wrongly linked MMR vaccine with autism prompted hundreds of thousands of parents to opt their children out of entirely sensible inoculations. A hyped-up insinuation that the government and the medical establishment were conspiring to sacrifice our next generation to autism has left up to a fifth of our children entirely unprotected against rubella, mumps and measles, a disease with complications such as brain injury and deafness. This is what measles looks like, a potentially fatal illness now in... The number of parents inoculating their children with MMR there have now been epidemics in Kent and Yorkshire and a first death from measles in 14 years. It's an acute example of the danger of devaluing evidence. Where once there was reason, now there is confusion. Thank you, Victoria, and I'll be lining up for my swine flu vaccination shot. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond and Mark West. Division has been produced by Mark in the studios of 2SER Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion.